Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. This is found on uh, your page 978 of your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love you to take that one home as a gift from us. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kay. Well, good morning to each one of you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. And if I haven't met you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, but I've been away on sabbatical for the past three months. And so, especially if you've come uh, in July or August or September, I probably, uh, there's a good chance I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. So, um, or maybe today is even your first Sunday with us at Christ Community. If either of those things are true, we'd love to meet you after the service. We're so glad that you are with us here this morning at Christ Community. And it has been great to be back. We've also are in this kind of season of celebrating the 10th anniversary of this particular campus location. So Christ Community as a church has been around for about well, over 30 years now, but this campus in Brookside was started 10 years ago. So we had a huge party last Sunday out on the lawn, food trucks, bounce houses. It was an incredible time. Many of you were there. Uh, then Thursday night, we had a, an amazing night of worship. If you were not there, uh, you really missed out. It was an incredible night together. And then we're going to keep it going. Like Holly mentioned, we're going to have one more kind of event to mark this 10-year anniversary. Uh, that's this coming Thursday, the Serve Night together. And, and we included that because part of our DNA, part of who we are as a church from the very beginning has been that we want to be a church that loves Kansas City, that wants to give ourselves away in our neighborhoods, our city, and even across the globe. And so it's that posture of generosity, that posture of being a church that people would look at and say, Kansas City is a better place to live because this group of people have come together and who are, are serving Jesus. And so we're going to do that together, um, again, for the whole family, sign up, dinner provided, activities for all ages. Um, we're really excited to do that together. So now as we look at this passage that Kay read for us, let me pray as we do that. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth and faith and love and strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit to follow on the path that you set before us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Who are you? It's a question we want to ask this morning together. Who are you really? And maybe more importantly, along with that, how do you answer that question? How do you answer the question, who are you? How do you begin to find an answer to that? And in different cultures and at different times, people have given different sort of responses, different approaches to answering this question of who I am. So maybe uh, it was for a season or in a particular culture, kind of your, your tribal group or your sort of extended family, your people that might define that. 
Or maybe it was your, your king or your sovereign that you were loyal to this king or this lord or this emperor, kind of gave you a sense of, of that's who I am. Or maybe it was about geography or religion that that's, that's who I am. And for example, in her phenomenal book, Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, Oxford historian Margaret McGimmelin, she points out that prior to and sort of leading up to World War I, there had been this, this idea that your identity was defined by the empire that you were a part of, whether that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, but your identity was kind of defined by your allegiance to that sovereign. But again, in these nationalist movements prior to World War I and then certainly after World War I, and the book kind of chronicles how did the map of Europe and really the world get reassigned and divided up after World War I, that this idea of linguistic affinity or shared ancestry and ethnicity really began to build. Of No, we, we need a lot of different countries to form our identities as kind of these people groups around ethnicity and language that was different than it had been before. And among different generations, even in modern Western American culture, have different approaches to determining the answer to that question, who am I? Now, I'm going to walk through some kind of generational categories and how those generations have been shaped by and, and influenced by, okay, how do I answer this question, who I am? And just let me say, before I walk through that, obviously the start and end point of any generation is a little bit arbitrary, and your experience if, as you fall into these generations may be, may be different, but still it's helpful to look at, at trends in these. And so, for example, if we look at the baby boomer generation, that's people who were born between 1946 and 1964, roughly, is how that generation defined, tended to have their identity dictated to them by cultural institutions like family or church or civic duty. You sort of grew up, and, and people sort of told you, this is who you are. Your identity was more dictated to you. Now, with Generation X, that's people born 1965 to roughly 1980, there's a shift that happens. It's a move to authenticity, a, a kind of a pushing back on this idea that someone from the outside can tell me who I am. Rather, there's the sense of I have to look inside and discover who I am. So there's something true inside of me that needs to be authentically expressed and sort of my job as a person is to look inside and discover who that is and then live that out. Right, so when you think about the 1990s, which is when Gen X really came to its prominence, I, I read a book called The 90s by Chuck Klosterman, and he observed that in the 1990s, there was nothing worse than selling out. Nothing was more embarrassing in the 1990s than trying to convince people to like the thing you made because it was all about, like, I just, this is who I am, this is, I'm expressing that whether you like it or not. So you discover who you are. But then another shift happens with millennials and especially Gen Z. So millennials, 1981 to 1996. So I'm right on the cusp. I was born in 1982, so I'm right on that hinge between Gen X and millennial. And then Gen Z is people born 1997 to 2012. There, there's another significant shift that happens, and that is that no longer is identity really seen as something that's being dictated to you or even something that you look inside and discover. Rather, identity is something that you create for yourself. You define that for yourself, and it can shift over time. It's something that's a composite. You pull together different pieces, but you define your identity. And beginning in 2019, Vice News began a project surveying their Gen Z readers. So they kind of looked at who are the 16 to 22-year-olds who are reading our site, and we're going to 
survey them in sort of four main categories to create what they called their guide to 2030, which is when the oldest Gen Zs will be in their mid-30s and really starting to, to give influence and leadership and culture. And so those categories were well-being, work and education, activism, and identity. Here's a couple of insights from that identity category. They write, according to Pew Research, Gen Z is the most diverse generation of Americans ever. And based on what our Gen Z respondents told us, that diversity seems to manifold a sense of fluidity that seeps into all their identifications. The majority said they understand why labels are useful but still find them too limiting. And they were more likely than older generations to acknowledge that parts of themselves are more authentic online while others are more real in person. And then I thought this uh, kind of statistic from the survey was particularly interesting because you see the generational shift that we've been talking about. So 62% of Gen Z surveyed felt strongly that people should be able to use any identity label which they feel comfortable compared to only 52% of millennials and just 30% of Gen X respondents. Now again, I, I point all this out and define these generations out this way, not to say that you know, one had it better, one, they, all, all of those have strengths and weaknesses, those approaches to identity. But rather just to remind us of the moment that we live in, that identity and an approach to discovering identity is not set. And it's more and more difficult than ever to sort of point to our people and say, well, that, that's who I belong to because who our people are changes so rapidly. We tend not even to point to our families as much as we used to because our family ties are, are often weaker than they've ever been because of all kinds of things, geographical distribution, um, divorce, uh, all these kinds of things. And again, speaking of geography, we move a lot as a people much more, right? So there was a time when you would be born and kind of stayed and raised and lived and had your own kids kind of all in the same area, but now it's part of our culture to move and transfer. And so your geography, maybe you identify with your hometown, but our geography is less and less an answer of who I am. And the same with work, right? We change jobs more than ever. And so even a sense of, and not even just jobs, but often careers, right? You might do several entirely different things over the course of your life, which I think is partly why politics have become all the more important for so many as an identity marker, because it's one thing that can kind of stay the same across geography, across job changes. For sadly, for some, that's all they have left is this kind of political identity. So the point of all this is that our contemporary society has left us with very few tools to answer the question, who are you really? And so we're left on our own to come up with an answer, which may sound good at first, like, hey, I can just figure it all out for myself. But that's a lot of pressure, right? Because what if I get it wrong? Or I've talked to more and more people, especially in that Gen Z category, who bear an immense weight of what if I don't ever figure it out? What if, what if I don't ever really discover who I am? And so often we'll look at our desires to try to figure that out, but here's the tricky thing. Which set of desires do you look to? because we have both strong desires and we have deep desires. Often they're not the same. What do I mean by strong desires? Strong desires are things like lust, greed, anger. That In any given moment, you may experience really strong desires for any of those things. But often our deepest desires are to be people of integrity and generosity and faithfulness and self-sacrificing. 
And, and so often, our strong desires at any given moment are in competition with our deepest desires for the long term of who we desire to be. So what set of desires do you follow? Because if you don't know who you are, you won't know what your life is for. You won't know the best way to live. And so we're, we're forced to sort of make it up as we go and, and hope for the best. But that's exa- it's exhausting, for one, and it can often be, often be deeply isolating as well. So, who are you? Well, Christians, across time and culture, for the last 2,000 years, whether you're in first century Alexandria, whether you're in 21st century America, have answered the question simply by this, that God reveals who we are, that his word answers that question. And if you are a Christian, you never have to wonder who you are or why you exist because God tells us. And that might sound overbearing or restricting or bossy at first. Like, what gives him the right to tell me who I am? But we really have to wrestle the question, would I rather muddle through struggling on my own to answer that question? Or let the God who made me, who sees you, who loves you fiercely, who gave his life for you, who knows you, who knows why he made you, let you, let him tell you who you are. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You can grab one of the pew Bibles that's in the rack in front of you. You can pull it up on your phone. I'm also going to have some of these texts on the screen, but I'd love for you to just even look at the passage as we walk through together. And Paul reminds us of who we were first, who we were apart from Jesus. And for those of you who are in this room who have come to know and trust Jesus, do you remember who you were, what life was like before that? I know I do. I, and I grew up in a, in a Christian family. I grew up in the local church. And yet it was the summer between my sophomore and junior of high school that the gospel really made sense and came alive in my life. And, and as I think back to that time, like many teen- teenagers, I didn't know who I was. Uh, I was often, more often than not, ruled by my strong desires rather than my deep desires. And there's certainly regrets and even pain, shame from things in that period of my life. And maybe you could point to similar things, the old you. Let me just ask yourself, who would you be today apart from an abiding relationship of love and life with Jesus? Well, here's how Paul describes the old me, the old us, the old you. This is verse 17 through 19. He just has this huge list in these verses. He says, We were futile, darkened, alienated, ignorant, hard-hearted, calloused, given over to sensuality and greed and every kind of impurity. You read a list like that and you're like, Whoa, okay, easy, Paul. It's Sunday morning. Just give me a minute to catch my breath here. And while it's difficult to even read a list like that, I think it's more difficult is to look inside our own hearts and see that those things are so often true. Still, of who we are as people. And some of us carry deep regret and shame from those things in our lives. And Paul acknowledges that. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. But God wants you to hear this this morning. The one who made you, who sent his son to redeem you, who gave you his Holy Spirit to give you new life, says that this is who you are now, verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, 
which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And here, verse 24, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's Paul's point this morning. Don't miss this. That the true you is the new you. There's an old you and a new you. And when you ask the question, who am I? If you are a Christian, the answer to that question is that the new you in Christ is the true you. So he tells us to put off the old self and to be the new you instead. It's sort of like when a family gets together. And this summer I had the opportunity while I was on sabbatical to gather with my whole extended family. And it was actually the first time that all of us had been together in the same space since before the pandemic. I got to meet two nieces for the first time. It was just a great time. Now, you know, my sisters and I were, were all grown up, and yet more together, I sort of revert back to who I was as that 13, 14-year-old brother, giving my sisters a hard time acting in those same kind of patterns. You can ask Rachel, you know, the Bill kind of is a different, different person when he's around his sisters, because we tend to go back to that when we're with our families, right? Those childhood roles, without even thinking about it. And we do the same things as Christians. We so easily go back to our old ways, those patterns that were so deeply ingrained in us. But Paul says, stop. Like, that is not who you are anymore. The new you, the new you in Jesus is the true you. That is who you truly are. And it's not just the new you individually, but we together as a whole family. It's a new us and he points to two or other three things in this passage that are true of this new family. The true you, the true us. The new you builds with words. The new you is good at anger. And the new you radically forgives. Now, maybe you've seen in yard signs with this, or maybe you've seen decor in someone's home that sort of says, you know, these are kind of our family rules, or in this house we believe, or in this house... And in a way, Paul is giving us, this is a a list, this is a picture of who this family is. This is how it is like this family of the local church to act. This is the new us. This is how the new us acts. And he begins with saying, in this house, the new us builds with words. There's so much in Ephesians chapter 4 about our words, our speech, how we speak to one another. Because what we say, and not only what we say, but when we say it, has incredible power. Incredible power. So look at verse 25 where Paul says this, therefore having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now if you were with us last week, if you've been with us on this journey through Ephesians, you know that really the main theme of this entire letter of Ephesians is unity that Jesus is creating one new kind of humanity in himself where different groups of people who would know, normally not be with one another, who would be at odds with one another, are brought together in one new family. And he's reminding them that I'm here. You are members of one another. And when we fail to tell each other the truth, it destroys our relationships. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in the message. He says this, In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other, after all. And listen to this. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Because we're in one body, because we are members of this one new body, when we lie to others, you end up lying 
to yourself. And then Paul goes on, he adds this a little bit later in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And maybe you can relate to this, but you get with a, a group of friends and someone cracks a joke and someone cracks another joke and you're all laughing, you're trying to sort of one-up one another and, and tell the, the joke and get the bigger laugh and, and then you, you, know, you end up saying something or joking, it kind of crosses the line. Maybe you find yourself prone to making cutting or sarcastic comments that may be funny, that may be humorous, but that they wound. We have to be especially careful with this with kids because kids don't understand sarcasm. Um, developmentally, they don't. And so as parents or if you work with kids, have kids, you got to be really careful about that one. Or maybe just let four-letter words fly like rounds from an automatic weapon at people you love. The singer-songwriter Sarah Groves, she has this great line in her song, Roll to the Middle. This is how the song begins. She says, we just had World War III here in our kitchen. We both thought the meanest things, and then we both said them. We shot at each other till we lost ammunition. When's the last time you thought? Not just about the right words to say, but about the right timing. When to say it. Will they be able to receive this now as an act of grace toward them? And just in case you're wondering, the right place and the right time is almost never social media. So just don't ever default to that one as the first space. And what Paul's writing here, it's not new. This is not innovative, what he's saying. He's actually drawing on this rich wisdom tradition that you find in the Old Testament, particularly codified in the book of Proverbs. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, one practice you can do, there's 31 uh, chapters in the book of Proverbs. Just read one, uh, one a month or one a day for the month, and you can kind of get through the book of Proverbs. Maybe if you've never done that, just try that. But you'll notice, and maybe even mark in, in your Bible, all the times that speech or language or how we talk to one another comes up, it's all over Proverbs. And Paul, as a Jewish rabbi, would have been very familiar with Proverbs. And you just see that kind of wisdom of Proverbs in this text. Here are a few Proverbs that speak about our tongues. It says, The lips of the righteous know what is appropriate. And it sounds like Ephesians 4, right? Know what is appropriate, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Listen, I mean, that's an incredible description of what the words of someone who is empowered by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, their, their, their mouth is a fountain of life. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And then this is probably one of the most powerful verses in all of Proverbs of anywhere in the Bible about our tongues. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. On the opening page of the Bible, God speaks and life comes to be. The world and all that we see exists because of the power of his speech. And as creatures created in his image, Jesus, through the Paul here, through the Apostle Paul, says, we have that same power in our tongues. The author of Proverbs, life and death is in the power of the tongue. We have the power of God in our tongues, either to destroy our fellow image heirs or to build them up and to bring life. 
that's who we are. We're people who build with words. That's how it's like us to act as a community. But that's not all. We are also a people. The new us is good at anger. And what does it mean to be good at anger? Uh, Aren't we supposed to avoid anger at all costs as Christians? To be nice, just to take it, to shove it down and down and down and down until you finally explode? That's how Bill deals with anger, actually. Um, But that's not how Christians deal with anger. That's not how you, you follow Jesus in anger. Because there's actually a way to deal with anger as Christians that is positive. There's actually a way to be good at anger. And it's not just to avoid it. Look at verse 26. Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is a command that Paul gives. It's not a concession. It's not like, well, sometimes you'll get angry, but do your best when you do. He's actually saying here, you should be angry. There are things to be angry at as people, as people following Jesus, an injustice, an oppression, a poverty, disease. We should be angry when we see people destroying their lives or doing things that are wrecking and destroying others' lives. There are reasons that we should be angry. Even at the sin in our own lives, when we see how the tentacles of that old self are creeping back in, there's a right anger. Sometimes anger is the right response. And, and anger actually, as an, from an emotional standpoint, is a, it gives us a lot of emotional energy to confront wrongdoing, to protect those who are weak, to pursue injustice. It actually gives us the energy to do that. And, and you see this with Jesus in Mark chapter 3. It's the Sabbath, which is supposed to be the, right, this day of rest, and there's these uh, religious leaders who are trying to catch Jesus working on the Sabbath by healing. And there's this guy who has a withered hand, and they're following him around, literally following him around, waiting to see, is he going to work on the Sabbath by healing this guy so they can have something to accuse him of? And this is what Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3 about this moment. He says, and Jesus looked around at them, the religious leaders, with anger. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, their hardness of heart, and said to the man, this is the guy with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So what did Jesus do with his anger in that moment? He turned it toward the healing, the restoration of this man. He moved his anger to heal, not to destroy. And this is how anger is different than sort of this unrestrained rage that just tears people down. And and Paul makes this clear. He says, be angry, here in this verse, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So you you have to be careful with your anger. Don't sin in it. I mean, it's, it's such a powerful emotion. It can easily take over and make you step into this area of sin. So don't give that opportunity because the evil one will take it. And this is also where our anger and our speech, which we just talked about a moment ago, are so deeply connected. In fact, in verse 31 of chapter 4, you see this, where Paul says, Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, shouting and slander, be removed from you, along with all malice. So anger can often get out of hand and distort the way we speak to one another. And President Ulysses S. Grant recognized in his own life the connection between anger and speech. 
I've been working through Ron Charno's uh, biography of Grant. Um, it's a slow go. It's a, I've been listening to it. It's a 48-hour audiobook, so it's, it's a long, long biography. Um, but Charno's an, he's, just, he's a riveting writer. He wrote the a biography of Washington, the biography of Hamilton that was kind of the basis of the, the musical Hamilton. And he points out in this biography that Grant was known for, one of the things that was, he was known for was his absence of swearing. Uh, through his time at West Point, and then his time as a military commander during the Civil War. Uh, this was really uncommon, right? You think of military life, this is a, a place where there's lots of swearing happening, but Grant was known for his absence of this, and this is what Grant said later on in his life about this. He said, I never learned to swear. When I was a boy, I seemed to have an aversion to it, and when I became a man, I saw the folly of it. And notice how he connects anger and speech. He says, swearing helps rouse a man's anger, and when a man flies into a passion, his adversary who keeps cool always gets the better of him. Swearing is a great waste of time. And Grant just recognized the wisdom of how that moved him into this place of, of losing his cool, and that actually gave his adversaries an advantage over him. The new us is good at anger. Anger at the right things, in the right way, at the right time. And we know how to channel it for healing and not for destruction. But if you're like me, you do not always do this well. Whether it's with your words or with your anger that we blow it. Which is why I'm convinced that Paul goes next here in this text. And that is that the new us radically forgives. The new us radically forgives. Again, because we don't always build with our words. We don't always use our anger to bring healing. We have to be quick to apologize and quick to forgive or we will die. Your marriage will die. Your friendships will die. You'll alienate your kids. You will be a serious problem at work or school or any team that you're a part of. If you are not a person who is able to quickly say, I am sorry, I apologize, and I'm, I'm genuinely and deeply sorry for what I did, and also be the kind of person who, when someone asks that of you, or says that to you, can be, give genuine forgiveness. Being a people of forgiveness, that is how it is like us to act as a church family. It's how it's like us to act. Why? Why does that characterize who the local church is? Because it's how our Father, who adopted us into his family, it's how he acted toward us. Through the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been adopted into this family, this, this new unified family that is created actually by forgiveness. This family was created by God's forgiving work. And it's created for forgiveness. Look at verse 32, where Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why and how? As God in Christ forgave you. This is how we act because this is how we have been treated. In this house, we are quick to apologize. We name when wrong has been done. We don't excuse it. We apologize, and, and we truly apologize. We don't just try a, say a trite, I'm sorry. I, I love what Stephen King says about this. He says, sorry is the Kool-Aid of human emotions. It's what you say when you spill a cup of coffee or throw a gutter ball, a gutter ball when you're bowling with the girls in the league. True sorrow is as rare as true love. May we be a community where true sorrow 
over hurt that we've done to another. It's what characterizes us. And the true receiving then and giving of forgiveness is what's marked when that sorrow is expressed. The new us is truly sorrowful when we hurt for one another. We apologize and we forgive every time. We don't excuse other people's sins. And sometimes we need to set good boundaries with people who have hurt us. That's necessary sometimes. Because it is never, hear me, it is never loving to allow someone to continue to sin against you. Do you hear that? That's not love. To allow someone else to continue to sin against you. Uh, nor do we minimize the wrong that's been done. Paul doesn't say excuse one another as God in Christ has excused you. He says, no, forgive. And listen to how C.S. Lewis describes real forgiveness. He writes this, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse. After all allowances have been made and seen and in all of its horror and dirt and meanness and malice, You're looking full on at the thing for which there's no excuse. He says to excuse is not Christian charity. What he means by Christian charity is is to excuse is not just being a good Christian. He says it's only fairness. It's the minimum that's required because to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because that's exactly what God has done. He's forgiven the inexcusable in you. This takes practice. It takes training. And we have, we have three kids, eight, six, and four, and we force them to say sorry to one another. And they don't often mean it. So it's, sorry. <laughs> and then, what do you say? I forgive you. But sometimes... You have to train before it become, before you feel it, before you believe it, right? We practice this as together as a community, doing the right thing. Living not into our strong desires in the moment for vengeance, but for our deep desire to become people who forgive like Jesus has forgiven you. And we can do this because we have been made new. You actually have the power to do this because the new you is the true you. And we are learning to live out this life as we learn from Jesus in his yoke. And actually the language of the way you learned Christ, Paul uses that language. This this wasn't the way you learned Christ. There's a way in which you learned Christ that's different from the way you're living out now. That language of the way you learned Christ is the same language that Jesus himself uses in Matthew 11, 29 when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Friends, when we hear the scriptures read, when we pray with one another, when we sing songs to one another, Jesus is teaching us. We're learning from him through his word, by the spirit, how to live this new life that he's given to us. And Paul, in Ephesians, Paul is obeying Jesus' great commission in these verses by reminding and teaching the Ephesians and us to observe everything that Jesus commanded. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus looks at his 12 uh, apostles and he says to them, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen to this verse 20. Teaching them 
to obey or to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is with us, empowering us to do this. And that's what making disciples is, baptizing people into this new life of Christ where their old self dies with Jesus and their new self is raised to life with Jesus. And then Paul is instructing the Ephesians on how to live out this new baptismal life and identity. Jesus speaks and teaches through the Spirit, through the Scriptures, as the Gospel is proclaimed and taught. The new us builds with words. The new us is good at anger. The new us radically forgives. The new you is the true you. How do you answer the question, who am I? If you're in Jesus, the answer is, the, the new you in Jesus is the true you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us who we are. And that's an odd phrase that only Christians can, can, can kind of say. It's a weird grammatical construction. But make us who we already are. Make us more truly who you have declared us to be. Who we are as we have been united to you. Who we are being remade in the image of Jesus. The true human. Who we are always meant to be as humans. Who can be entrusted with your power. The power that you've given us with your words. Would we be the kind of people who use our anger on behalf of others. Protect us from the ways that anger can go wrong. Make us the kind of people who are quick to forgive one another because we know so deeply the forgiveness that we've already received from you. That we would know that you are the one who will be the judge and so we don't have to. We don't have to hold on to resentment or bitterness. We don't have to make the other person pay. You will handle that. And I pray even now as we respond to you in the rest of the service and song and prayer and communion that we would be a fresh, that we would have a fresh experience of the forgiveness and the new life that you've given us. In Jesus' name.